You're listening to Software Unscripted. I'm your host, Richard Feldman. Today I'm talking with Carson Gross, a programmer at Big Sky Software, instructor at Montana State teaching programming and compilers, and author of the HTMX JavaScript library. We talk about some of the ways in which modern web development has arguably regressed over the past 15 or so years, and also get into hypertext, hypermedia, hypercard, hyperview, hyperscript, and even some other topics that don't have hyper in the name. And now, the return of hypermedia. All right, Carson, thanks for joining me. Yeah, thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. All right, so you created HTMX, which one of the fundamental things that's different about it compared to most JavaScript frameworks is that you don't send JSON over the wire in HTMX. You send HTML over the wire from the server to the client, and then HTMX helps you put that HTML in various different places on the page without having to reload the page. Now, this is familiar to me as an old school web developer because there was a period in time, for me, it was about like 2006, 2010, maybe that era, where we used to call this Ajax, and it was really, really common. It was like the best practice was send HTML over the wire and then dynamically replace parts of the screen with it using like hard-coded JavaScript. And HTMX makes it so you don't need to actually write the JavaScript to do that. You can just load this library and put attributes on your HTML so they sort of know how to do that. And a thing I think is really interesting about this, and I'm really curious to hear how much of this inspired you versus other things inspired you. The thing that is interesting to me about it is that one way you could look at the history of web development is that we we started at that point, and then we did this experiment to send lots of JSON over and do more and more stuff in the client with JavaScript. And you could say, hey, maybe the way we did it before was actually better or better in a lot of cases, or maybe even better usually. And maybe HTMX is a way of you know saying, yeah, let's go back to that because actually the thing that we did after that was not a step forward. It was a step back. I'm curious to what extent that resonates with you or like was was that part of the inspiration for HTMX or the things leading up to it? Sure. Everything's much more chaotic. It's easy to look back and say, oh, there was a, a plan here, but the, you know, there wasn't really <laughs> sure. a plan. HTMX started off as Intercooler JS, which was a basically a, a jQuery based library like most stuff was. I started it's actually uh, the 10 year anniversary of the first check-in for Intercooler was 10 years ago this past Sunday. Oh, wow. So 10 years ago, jQuery was, I mean, it, it was pretty dominant. It was oh, starting yeah. to fade a little bit. I feel like it was starting to get this. There were these other, other things coming along. Angular could come along. Knockout. Was out at that point and so forth. Knockout, yeah. But when I built it, it basically just started as a function. Like I just had this function that I'd written that was sort of a, a jQuery helper. And uh, I realized that I could do exactly what you're saying, issue an Ajax request, take the response and jam it into the um, jam it into the DOM somewhere. And it, jQuery actually has a method for doing that. It's pretty specific. I think it only issues gets. So, um, but you can also do Ajax. And so, and I, I just ended up sort of bundling this all up. And then I saw how Angular was using attributes and that kind of, I took those two things and put them together. And then also, I don't know if you, did you ever work with PJAX? PJAX was a library back then. I remember the name, but I didn't personally use it. Okay. It was big in the Rails community. That's where I saw it. And so PJAX was gotcha. also kind of in the mix there. And I kind of took all those ideas and jammed them together and made this thing called Intercooler. And it was pretty sloppy for a while, but it, t- <laughs> it started to tighten up. And I am a contrarian. So I was looking at the complexity of the stuff that was coming out of the React world and I, I wasn't a huge fan of it. And uh, I had this other library, Intercooler.js, that was working well enough for what I was trying to do. And so to me, I just kind of stayed. And, you know, I, I, I tried to sell it to some, you know, I mean, I think it has 4,000 stars on GitHub. So, um, it, you know, there was, um, I would call it a moderately successful open source project. But I don't know if there was really that sort of oppositional feel like philosophical where I'm like, Oh, the old way was better. It was just, man, this new way is too complicated Uh for me. I was doing full (laughs) stack development and I just couldn't mentally spend the energy to figure out like, especially as churny as react was early on. Um, I don't know if it's gotten better. So I, you know, I, I, I think sort of stepping back from it and looking at how web development has gone, I would, I'd like to think of it as more of like a dialectic. And, and you see this in computing in general, where there's this desire to put everything on the server. And so, you know, back in the early days, you had terminals, dumb terminals that were connected to mainframes. And then, okay, now we're going to move everything onto the clients. We're going to have these really powerful clients. 
and the server is going to be real dumb and they're just going to send data and that's it. And so that, that, that was sort of the history of early computing. And then the web at some level was this idea, let's move back to, let's put the focus back on the server. It was this distributed architecture where the focus on the server, the server is providing hypermedia, which is sort of your UI definition coming from the server via some, you know, I don't know how much we want to get into it, but the uniform interface is like, I think a really interesting aspect of that. But then you can say, okay, well, and that has problems with it, which Roy Fielding, who's the probably the most influential thinker from early on in the web, he he explicitly noted that um, this architecture is good for certain types of things, but it's not good for other types of things. And that really, the, the things that it's not good for. So for example, like Google Maps, I don't know if you remember when Google Maps came out and it was just this mind blowing web application. Oh, yeah. That you yeah. could just, you know, you compare, uh, you know, I, if people, if you want a good sort of uh, concrete visual for why it, JavaScript heavy applications went, one, uh, compare Google Maps with MapQuest. MapQuest right. <laughs> was like the hypermedia version of of Maps, Google Maps, and it, and it wasn't very good. It was a very bad user experience. Um and so we went, you know, we kind of, the, the pendulum swung back the other way. And now I hope with HTMX, for some apps, and certainly not for Google Maps, I don't think it's a good applica- a good uh, library for, for building something like that. But for some applications, um, HTMX is sort of swinging the pendulum back the other way towards, okay, hypermedia had its problems, but with a few enhancements to HTML, we can make hypermedia a more viable solution for a larger class of applications. And it comes with a lot of benefits. Like there are a lot of benefits to hypermedia. It's a, a much simpler model than trying to maintain state on, you know, in two places. Like you often end up with uh, with thicker application models. You know, some people are like, oh, we're just going in circles. And I, you know, I can be, I, I'm sympathetic to that to an extent, but I also think we're we're actually improving things. Like it's an upward spiral, you know, and uh, there's a there's a dialectic in play here. Where, okay, we were all in on hypermedia without even really thinking about it. And then we went all in on single page applications with JavaScript. And now we're coming to, you know, some understanding that there are some classes of problems that hypermedia is good for. And there are some classes of uh, problems that hypermedia is not good for. And so let's mix those. Let's pick the appropriate tool for the, uh, for the job. And, uh, you know, uh, Rich Harris, um, the creator of Svelte, he coined a term, uh, transitional web applications that sort of mixes MPAs and SPAs together using, I think, islands of interactivity as a term. I don't know if he uses that term specifically, but I've heard it used where you sort of have these, these areas within your web application that require more interactivity. And so fine, you do that with a, some sort of thicker JavaScript type, uh, 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 application framework or some sort of framework or library that uh, supports that. And then maybe for your broader application, you consider using hypermedia. And the only thing I would add to that is to say that with, with HTMX, I think the class of problems that can be addressed purely with hypermedia is larger than most people suspect, most web developers suspect today. So, you know, I don't, I don't, uh, I'm definitely a contrarian and I'm definitely a little bit of a, you know, things were better back in the day. I'm pretty old now. So things were better back in the day. I was younger. <laughs> my, back didn't hurt, my knees didn't hurt and so forth. But, uh, uh, at the same time, I, you know, I, I, I don't think there's just a sort of like endless return to the same stuff. Like we're actually improving things. Uh, we're making things better. And, uh, there's a, a sort of a, a higher synthesis that's coming out of this. That would be my take on it. Yeah, I mean, lots of stuff to talk about in there. I mean, so one of the things that strikes me about this is that I think there's a knee-jerk superficial reaction whenever something comes back around that used to be, like things used to be done this way and it's like, hey, what if we did them that way again? And people say, oh, the pendulum's swinging back and forth. Everything's a pendulum. And I think that's probably wrong. Like knowing nothing else about it, it's, it's more often wrong than right. Almost always, there's a better explanation for why it's happening that isn't just oh everything's fads and we're just you know this it's this thing is in and that thing's out and it's just fashion. I gave a talk recently, no, well, okay, not that recently anymore, but I don't know a year ago or so called "Why Static Typing Came Back," and it's sort of okay. Let's accept as a premise that there was a long time where dynamic typing was getting more and more popular and getting really really popular, 
And now static typing is sort of becoming more and more popular and dynamic typing is getting less and less popular, proportionately speaking. And some people will say that's just because it's the pendulum swinging back. But as I talked about in the talk, I don't think that's right. I think it's that static typing is getting better than it used to be. And a lot of its downsides are decreasing. And a lot of the upsides that used to be exclusive to dynamic typing, it turns out you can get a lot of those benefits using statically typed languages. Now that we sort of know, realize that those are benefits, the statically typed languages are adapting and the dynamically typed languages, in some cases, there are just certain benefits of static typing that cannot be obtained without adding a type checker. And the reverse is not true, at least in the case of a lot of the, the, a lot of the things that people like about dynamic types, like fast feedback loops and so forth. So I am immediately uh, in agreement with you about the idea that I don't think it, it, this is just a fashion thing. I think in a lot of ways, things used to be, or at least web development, used to be better in the old days compared to how sort of typical web development is done today. I remember when I first heard about React, the thing that excited me about it was I happened to be making as a side project, this application, it was called DreamWriter that was at the time just written with, I think I might've used jQuery originally. I rewrote it twice. Uh, second time was in Elm. But the first time it was it was definitely not using React because React hadn't come out yet. And I didn't even, Elm wasn't on my radar yet. And I had a lot of trouble with, even though it was extremely client side, it actually worked offline. That's how <laughs> I was using the uh, the precursor to the, um, oh, what's it called now? Uh, Progressive oh, web uh, app. Yeah, there, so there's a there's an API for that. I'm totally blanking on the name now, but it was the the old terrible API for it was like uh, manifest or something like that. I don't know. There was this old really bad way of making your apps work offline that was really painful, and I was using it with that because I really wanted the whole thing to work offline. And all it did was it would just periodically sync your your like uh, index DB stuff up to the server, and that was it. But really complicated UI to the point where I had some really serious bugs in it, and that was kind of why I ended up um, <laughs> rewriting it in React and then. Uh, ultimately in Elm, and Elm at least solved the, the bugs problem. But most web applications that I use day to day are not that. They're not usually, I have a huge amount of complicated client-side UI. They're, they're not Google Maps either. They're not like, I mean, Google Maps has both a huge amount of client-side uh, you know, state and, and interactivity and whatnot, but also uh, really strict performance requirements. And so the latency of a network round trip for certain interactions on Google Maps is just not going to fly. They need to really carefully optimize the, their network usage. But yeah, most applications don't have either of those. Most applications that I use day to day are both of the following are true. One is they have a very thick UI client. And two is it's not really doing much more than what we used to do in the old days when we just <laughs> primarily we would write HTML that would get generated on the server. And then uh, you would enhance that with a little bit of Ajax just, just to avoid page loads. That was it. I mean, really, you could have just read on the whole page, which a lot of things did, but that was a little bit too slow of a UX for certain things. I'm reminded of like form validations is a really obvious one. It's like, I don't want to have to fill out the whole form and then hit submit just to have it re-render the whole page and tell me that username is taken. You know, I yeah. want to, I want to just get that. <laughs> now your scroll state is all screwed up and you're right. not, it's great. Yeah. And yeah. so, you know, as you noted, you don't need react to solve that problem. <laughs> you don't need it. You know, you don't need Elm to solve that problem either. I mean, you can totally solve that problem just by having some, you know, 95% static HTML. And then if you want to just get a little bit of information from the server, why do you need a whole JSON payload that just says it was an error and the problem was your username is not valid when instead you could get back, you know, here's the message to display. And then also maybe like the submit button is, you know, is still disabled or something like that. Or, or well, right. I, I have feelings about whether buttons should be visibly disabled or not versus uh, sure. <laughs> neither here nor there. Um, but yeah, it definitely seems like things like that, th that category of applications where it's primarily HTML or I guess hypermedia describing your UI and just a little bit of interactivity of things that need to talk to the server to get the answers describes most of the web apps that I use day to day. But the, the technologies that people are using to do them are really optimized for a different set of usage patterns. They are. That's exactly it. You know, there's this, it's CRUD applications, right? They're kind of junky, not real applications, but they're the backbone of a lot of corporations and a lot of just, you know, they, they, they can provide an awful lot of, an awful lot of value can be provided 
via the the server side, via the coordination that, that takes place on the server side. And then uh, these days, especially with like AI and all this crazy stuff going on with the actual computation that's being done on the server side, and that's not being done on the client side. And to tap into that, you don't need a crazy client side <laughs> library, um, you know, and the, the hypermedia model with a couple of enhancements that really address that big clunky kerchunk that you used to have in the old days when the entire page would refresh, you, you, you know, the user would lose their scroll state, all just all this sort of stuff that made it not feel very poor when compared with native applications is what people were typically comparing with them early. And now I think people would compare them with mobile applications. And, uh, you know, it, so I think you can just that, with HTMX, you extend the class of problems that hypermedia can address quite quite a bit, um, you know, because you take that that full page refresh off the table, and it turns out a lot of problems are yeah, just getting a form into a database or getting a little bit of information to the back end, letting the back end crunch on it, and getting it back to the user. And uh, that's something that hypermedia can be very good at if it's unbundled from this idea that you have to replace the whole page. It's interesting because. The idea of not replacing the whole page has been around forever. I mean, you, I don't, if you remember iframes, you, can, you could do sort of a, a proto HTMX-like thing with iframes. You can have an, an anchor and then target an iframe. It was very limited. And people have been talking about, what is it, transclusion? I think that's the term. Like the, the people who talk a lot about hypermedia have talked about transclusion forever now. It seems like that the, the culture around transclusion was more, it was, it was focused on including other content. And this is one area where I've seen, like a lot of people t- think about this, like, oh, how would I do like third-party widgets? You know, how would I bring in HTML from some third-party and put it on my page. And I've just never seen that work very successfully. Um, I've, I've always advocated, you know, you, you should use hypermedia for your application, but if you're integrating with a third party, that integration either needs to be done server side and then you present the hypermedia that you want, or, um, you know, just use JSON and build the hypermedia you want. Um, and so, uh, for whatever reason, it just never really popped into existence. This just, but to me, I mean, if you, I think if you, you know, your, your, uh, listeners, if they look at HTMX, this is not a complicated library. <laughs> right. <laughs> it's it's 3000 lines of JavaScript. It's in a single JavaScript file. It's written by a guy who admittedly writes very idiosyncratic <laughs> JavaScript. You know, the majority of the complexity that's in there, I would say, not, not, not the majority, but a lot of it is just history management, which is kind of a pain in the rear end to deal with. But, you know, the fundamental idea, you, you could write like a, a 50% version of HTMX and probably 100 lines of JavaScript. And so why hasn't this been done before? Um, that's which is a question I often ask myself. Like, I, I feel like at some level, I was like, stupid enough to not be able to get the new stuff, but just smart enough to make it like there was this, this perfect level of <laughs> stupidity slash intelligence to make something like HTMX. And, uh, it really does. I mean, you know, there's, uh, I think the, it's, it's safe to say at this point that uh, it's a very effective tool for many problems that people are currently, you know, addressing with very complicated tool toolkits like, uh, react. Well, you mentioned mobile, and I think that was, I don't think it's a coincidence that a lot of this stuff started happening when, when the, after the iPhone came out and mobile became a much bigger deal. And I, I understand where the impulse came from, where a lot of companies were saying, well, we're going to need a, an iOS app, an Android app, and a web app. And so we don't want, we want to share code across all those. We want to have one JSON endpoint, and then, you know, iOS is going to talk to that, and Android is going to talk to that, and then our JavaScript frontend is going to talk to that. But I think that something that a lot of these companies maybe didn't consider or, or, or maybe should have thought of, or especially maybe should have gone back and revisited later, is answering the question, okay, well, you're going to have a certain number of lines of code for your iOS app, and a certain number of lines of code for the Android app, and a certain number of lines of code for rendering your web UI. Do you want those lines of code for rendering your web UI to be React, or do you want them to be something else? Because if you could have them be something else like what we're talking about is an architecture we're not necessarily talking about are you or are you not code sharing like your back-end database calls those can all be code shared it's all on the server like the, the question is just like do you have to be 
sending JSON to something? Or is it like, if you're going to write all that code anyway, in the front end, what if instead you wrote different code that was rendering HTML and, and or, or maybe even serving static HTML largely, and then, you know, enhancing it with a little bit of uh, extra network stuff on the server. And I, I, I forget if it was you or somebody else who noted this at some point, but most web applications again, like, you know, not talking about Google Maps and stuff here, like the amount, the volume of data that's going over the wire comparing JSON versus HTML is going to be about the same in, in both cases. It's going to be pretty comparable. And the browser is just about as fast at parsing both of them. So it's not even like by reusing the JSON that you would be sending to your Android or, or iOS clients is going to be, you know, it's like, it's not like that's, that's going to be helping out your web app necessarily. It's potentially just like, well, you've got it, but it's kind of a sunk cost. You should still evaluate like what's best for my web app, you know, <laughs> separately from that. And maybe there's a better or a nicer architecture. Not to mention, I mean, I, I have not done, admittedly, iOS or Android development, but I have tried in the browser to try to make something that parses faster than JSON. And I don't think it's possible. Just the string decoding alone just kills you. As soon as you have to decode a string, you're out of the running. So, okay, yes, if you're if you're sending stuff to the client and the client is the browser, then you kind of got to send JSON if you want the best performance. But actually, you could potentially do a lot better than that if you're sending to Android and iOS. I don't know Android and iOS development, like I mentioned, but I have to assume that if you're <laughs> if you're running Swift or Java, you can decode something faster than you can decode JSON and vice versa. So unless you really want to be sending JSON, which maybe you do, the fact that you know if you were to say we're going to do something else over the network with my our web client could actually make those other mobile clients faster because you wouldn't have to feel like I need to send JSON in order for all three of them to use it. You could actually improve the performance potentially of all of them by saying we're actually going to do server rendered HTML like in the old days and send that back and forth. Yeah, I, you know this. Uh, I think what you're touching on is a comment that I'll get from people who are when they're first introduced to HTML, they look at it and say. My API is returning HTML. That's crazy because no one else can use it. And uh, there's, you know, they're they're not wrong in 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 some sense. HTMX. If you adopt a hypermedia API or a hypermedia approach, some people don't like thinking of it as an API, but I certainly do. Then, yeah, it's not going to be useful for your Android or iOS application. You're going to need to do something else for them. So, is that bad? Well, okay. If you have a, a your domain logic encapsulated either in what, you know, I'm an object-oriented sort of person. So I like to think of the model, you know, my model objects that model my domain and hold the log the domain logic for, you know, whatever I'm trying to accomplish. And then typically this, you know, this is the traditional model view controller sort of architecture that I, I grew up with and that I'm most familiar with. You have controllers. So you would have controllers that are presenting your hypermedia API. And then you would have a separate set of controllers that were around to deal with your iOS and your Android application. And maybe they're returning protobuffers or whatever, you know, whatever sort of serialization system you want to use for that. And they're probably using something more like RPC because you're not, you don't have a hypermedia based application there. And so that's fine. They're just, you know, calling endpoints and those endpoints should, controllers in general should be pretty thin, pretty easy to maintain. And what's so people say, oh, that's so much code duplication. You're not sharing. And it's true to an extent, but I would argue that those concerns actually should be separated because you're, uh, unless your Android app and your iOS app and your, uh, your web app are identical, they're just going to have different needs from one another. They're going to, you know, the shape of a data access is going to differ from one to the other. And you don't want, you know, just because some iOS team needs a piece of data for a given thing, you don't want to include it in the web app and the response for the web app and uh, in your Android app. You know, you want those things separated so that you can tune them for the particular application. I think this becomes even more the case when you look at um, using a JSON API as a general purpose API for people to do integration work against your system. You know, this is another reason people will create a JSON API and say, oh, we can't, you know, we have to use the JSON API because that's what we have one API that everyone uses. When you start talking about third party people integrating with your app or with your API, excuse me, you need to do things like rate limiting. 
you need to provide a very expressive endpoint. Like you might start thinking about GraphQL or whatever, but GraphQL is sort of an area fraught with peril. I don't know how much you want to get into it, but there are (laughs) sorts of security issues that sort of come up. I I laugh because sometimes people are like, oh, HTMX, cross-site scripting, it's it's a security issue. And I'm like, guys, have you looked at GraphQL? (laughs) Do you know (laughs) what you can do with GraphQL? <laughs> Facebook whitelists, in my understanding, anyways, is fa- Facebook whitelists all their GraphQL queries. Are you whitelisting all your GraphQL queries? But in any event, like to get back to the original point, there's just different shapes of access, and so if you pull your your web application out of that morass and just tune it for what you want to accomplish with your web app, you can take advantage of the fact that web, that the hypermedia architecture is set up to be very flexible. So you can add and remove endpoints willy-nilly in a hypermedia-driven application, and it works because you're using Hadios. Hypermedia is the engine of application, or hypertext is the engine of application state. And the responses are including the links to the new functionality, or they're not including links to old functionality that's been removed. And so that that ability to be very flexible that comes with hypermedia by pulling it off of that main JSON API that you've got by pulling your web app out of that gives you a tremendous amount of flexibility. You don't have to version your APIs anymore. You know, you have just a a ton more flexibility. And so there's big advantages to it. Is there a little duplication at the controller layer? Yeah, probably a little bit, but that's okay because there's separate concerns. And so having them separate lets you tune them separately and give them to separate teams to manage and you don't have to conflict with one another. So, so that's kind of my take on that. Um, I think, you know, there, and you run into this a lot in software development. There's sort of this uh, Platonism with things where it's like, oh, we can only have one, <laughs> you know, like, well, or, you know, right. you, you don't repeat yourself. Well, yeah, sometimes. But if don't repeat yourself ends up meaning like creating a function with like 14 callbacks to specialize all the different situations that people need, like maybe that's not worth it. Maybe copy and paste is okay to avoid something (laughs) like that. And uh, so, you know, and I try not to be doctrinaire about these things. Like I would never say HTMX is right for every application because it's not. And uh, so, you know, I think just we're we're engineers. Hopefully we're reasonably mature engineers and we just need to understand the trade-offs and okay, what, what are we trying to accomplish? How can we minimize the complexity necessary to accomplish it? And let's go from there. Yeah. I I mean, I, I definitely think there's, um, Speaking of knee-jerk reactions, I think a lot of times people will label things as code duplication, I think, incorrectly or unreasonably. And this seems like an example of that. I mean, again, if you're talking about, okay, I've got this server, it's going to be sending this amount of network data to Android, iOS, and web browser. And you're like, I need to write a certain amount of logic to describe my Android UI, and a certain amount of logic to describe my iOS UI, and a certain amount of logic to describe my web UI. It doesn't matter if you wrote those lines of code in JavaScript on the client or on your website. It's just how many lines of code did you have to write and, and like how much logic did you have to put together and what's the architecture of that stuff and what are the you know performance trade-offs of that and so forth. So the fact that you did that on the server and decided to send HTML over the wire instead of JSON does not in any way mean that you engaged in code duplication. And like you said, also code duplication is sometimes correct and optimal. But but even setting that aside, this isn't even a case where that's like, I think, a reasonable label, uh, at least not necessarily. I mean, you could, I mean, separately also choose to, you know, rewrite all your database queries separately for each of those targets. But it's all on the server. The server can share code between its different, you know, things. Uh, the, the database queries and the business logic absolutely can be totally separate from you know, what are we rendering to send across the wire, whether that's JSON or HTML or anything else. I also really liked your point about versioning. I mean, that's kind of a subtle point, but I I remember very distinctly that I've used certain pieces of software in my career that in some cases, to be fair, have pretty complicated client states. So maybe they would want to use something, you know, different anyway, but they have this thing that will come up where you they're sort of designed to be left open in a tab for a really long time. And after a while, they will pop up this message that says, hey, your client's too old. I need you to refresh the page. Just you got to get the new stuff. We, we, you know, <laughs> we want to deprecate the old API endpoints at some point. So I'm sorry. It's, it's been too long since a refresh. So just hit refresh, please. And if you don't want those, 
you need to send new client logic over the wire <laughs> if you want to give people the experience of being able to sort of upgrade in place. And granted, maybe at some point you're like, I want to change the layout in such a way that a page refresh makes sense or you know, I'm worried about you know memory garbage accumulating over time. Okay, fine. But these are things where they would just happen as a matter of course periodically. And when I hit the refresh, the UI looked the same as before. Maybe there were some hidden tweaks here and there around if I'd hit, you know, press a certain sequence of buttons, I would see a little bit different. But like you noted, that is a concrete user experience benefit to sending HTML over the wire that you don't get from sending JSON is that you can send over new updated interactions without requiring the user who's using potentially this long-lived tab to refresh the page. And that's something you just can't get that in JSON unless you were to sort of recreate all of the functionality in HTML in JavaScript using JSON. As like, but then at that point, you're just, you've just reinvented HTML in a way that's going to be much worse for browser performance. Yep. Yeah. It's a, you know, it took me a long time to understand the, the, the power and the flexibility and it's a, it's hacky too. It's not, this is one thing that people struggle with is, and I did too. I mean, this is somewhat ironic that I've become a, such an advocate for the web and for hypermedia because early on in my career, I was, I built thick clients. I built, I used something called Java web start. I didn't, I looked at the web. It was, oh. it was right. Yeah. I know. <laughs> Everyone laughs. That sounds it. familiar. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, so I looked at the web, you know, back when I, I forget what it was called. It was called DHTML was sort of oh, yeah. HTML with JavaScript. Right. And yeah, dynamic I, I looked HTML, at it right. and, was, and I was like, no, I'm not doing this. Um, I'm going to, I'm going to build a real <laughs> application that uses a real RPC and does things the correct way. And so I did that. And for a couple of years, I just sort of lived off in my own little world building swing apps, um, that were, you know, integrated via RPC. And, um, so I finally kind of gave up because everyone was writing web apps and I said, fine, I'll learn this web stuff. And uh, yeah, I mean, I had done some in college, like some CGI type stuff. But, you know, at that point, the J Java web servers were and the J2EE stuff was really starting to come on. And so and so I started, you know, I started learning it, but it took me probably six or seven years to start appreciating what the heck the uniform interface was and how flexible, like, why is the web so successful? Because it's so junky, you know, like, you get a 404 response and you're like, what is this garbage? Like if you're a, you know, yeah. if you're a real distributed system programmer, like what is this garbage? Um, <laughs> but you have to say, you know, it just, it, man, it just keeps on ticking. And, uh, the more I'm around it, the more I appreciate that aspect of that flexibility. Yeah. It's a little gronky. Maybe it's not always ideal when compared to like a really well-tuned RPC architecture, but boy, is it general. And, you know, one thing I point out to people is like, if you had told someone in 1980 that in the year 2000, they would be using the same piece of software, if they even knew what software was, like say even like 1990, <laughs> if you told, you know, someone who was used to desktop computing in 1990, like, hey, in 10 years, you're going to be using the same piece of software to talk to your bank, to buy a car, to buy books, to check on your kids' grades, to pay your property taxes, like all it's going to do all this stuff for you. They would have said, you're crazy. Like, what are you talking about? <laughs> that doesn't make any sense. And this general hypermedia client that we all have now, the browser is just this, it, you know, it, it's really incredible. I think some people, you know, because they compare it with mobile apps or whatever, it's like, oh yeah, it's a piece of junk. But it, it really is a pretty incredible piece of software sort of hypermedia as being sort of, I mean, I keep using the term HTML because that's how I've always thought about it, you know, since back in the day. But, you know, you mentioned that the browser is a hypermedia client with the implication being that it's not, it doesn't have a, you know, monopoly on that. There could be other hypermedia clients where you send some markup to something other than a browser. And it says, you know, I got a button here with some text in here and a drop down here and this and that. And I've always noticed that, or I always thought it was interesting that, the words that they chose in HTML are more generic than the way they're displayed in the browser. Like it'll say things like, you know, option instead of like, you know, this is a, this is a dropdown. This is a, we used to call them combo boxes, I think in the <laughs> visual basic days. Yeah. Um, oh, yeah. But it's like about like, Hey, look, there's, there's just, and like unordered list instead of, you know, bullet points. Um, and I always in part thought of that as being kind of about, I mean, today we'd use the term accessibility, but I guess, Back then, I would think of it more as sort of like document rendering flexibility where 
they were like, well, this is only going to be rendered by browsers, or maybe they weren't thinking about this, but this will only be rendered by browsers, but different browsers should have the flexibility to render these things in different ways. But I wonder if, I guess I'm curious what your thoughts are on the idea of, do you think that in practice, there will come a time when somebody builds a client other than a browser that actually gets some some amount of popularity, where it's like, I get hypermedia you know, over the wire, and I am doing stuff that's not a browser, not recognizable as a browser with that. Yeah. Yeah. That's a really good point to think about. And uh, I would point your listeners to the htmx.org slash essays page where I've kind of, whenever these things occur to me, I try to knock an essay out. They're not always the best quality, but they're, they're pretty good. Some of them anyways, there's an essay on hypermedia clients and how important one thing that, so if you, if you were around during what I would call the rest wars of like the, the (laughs) the early late 2000s, early 2010s, everyone was arguing about whether or not their APIs were restful. And what I've come to appreciate is that uh, the the restful system that Roy Fielding defined in his paper, it really depends very heavily on a hypermedia client. And that's something that wasn't discussed very much during the rest wars. It was always focused on the API and what the components of the API were. And uh, people didn't people didn't think about how are people going to consume these things? What is the code that's going to consume this look like? And is it generic? And so browsers are obviously the most wildly successful hypermedia clients. And they there is this phenomenon where they keep getting more and more functionality. They keep kind of eating the world. Like, why wouldn't you, you know, they, and it's not always the best when compared with native applications or mobile applications these days, but it just slowly, there's like this Borg assimilation of, <laughs> assimilation of every feature that's necessary to produce applications that's happening with them. And so that really puts pressure on, you know, building a hypermedia client is hard, first of all. And now you've got these browsers, which are insanely complicated and insanely functional. How could you compete with it? I do know of one system, which is uh, called Hyperview, written by uh, Adam Stepinski, and that is a mobile hypermedia. Again, if your listeners are interested, we have a book out called Hypermedia Systems, which is available online for free at hypermedia.systems, but you can also buy it if you'd like. And part of that book is dedicated to him sort of describing his, and that's one of the reasons why we felt like we could call it Hypermedia Systems, so we described two, <laughs> so the web, and then also his mobile hypermedia. And so that uses an XML-based uh, hypermedia to describe mobile uh, a mobile hypermedia, so something that's integrated more tightly with the mobile uh, environment. And so he provides not only that the hypermedia, I think it's HXL, HXML is what it's called, but also he gives you a client. And so if you want to create a mobile application that uses hypermedia, you can deploy your application using his client. You know, you customize it and set it up the way that you want. And then you can deploy that as a mobile application. But that mobile application will talk to your server and use hypermedia rather than, you know, a, an RPC or database API. And so that's an example of somewhere where I think you might see another hypermedia client come along, some sort of specialized like that for mobile. But then you always have to wonder, okay, you know, are browsers, are browsers eventually going to get good enough, even on phones, that they can accomplish, you know, uh, what, uh, what could be previously only accomplished with native applications. So I think there's, you know, there's the general ideas of hypermedia systems, which in that book, that's what we try to get at, that are worth understanding as an engineer, whether whether or not we ever see another major hypermedia system arise, just the ideas that are in there are neat and uh, they, you know, have... Uh, it's worth, I think, understanding even if you're not going to end up writing a hypermedia client yourself necessarily. So, um, so we'll see. I, you know, I'm a big fan of Hyperview. Um, I would encourage your listeners if they are interested in hypermedia for mobile in particular to go and take a look at it uh, at hyper, hyperview.org. And Adam's a very smart guy um, and has done a lot of really interesting work with it. Yeah, I, I'm really curious now. What are the differences between? Because obviously, like phones have browsers. So, like, what's sort of in that? Uh you know, outside the Venn diagram overlap of like, of mobile browsers, like what are the things that this other hypermedia that's sort of phone focused, like what are the things that it uh, gives you or maybe also doesn't give you compared to what's in the browser? 
I think it gives you a lot better, like things like swipe and like pull down, like a lot of the sort of things that are hard to do with a browser doable in some cases, but just not, you can't do them uh, uh, well. And then the other thing that he gives you is the ability to include your own native functionality and then access it from your hypermedia. And so you can have, for example, you know, a file, you interact with the local file system in an unlimited way through, but you get to extend the hypermedia so that your system knows how, you know, so it's, it's yours. It's, it's not like a browser. It's not a general purpose browser. You don't have one browser for one, excuse me, one hypermedia client for all Hyperview based applications, if I understand correctly. Instead, you have your own specialized browser and you can extend the language, you know, the hypermedia however you want uh, for your needs. But you still get this advantage of, for example, when you, uh, you don't have to go through uh, application approval, for example, if you want to update your app. If it's purely just you're changing the hypermedia around, then the users just see it just like they would with a web app. So it kind of straddles that line between uh, native and uh, and, and you get sort of native functionality, but you, then you also have the, the the benefits that come along with the hypermedia system. You know, I, I tell people, I think his system, Hyperview, is far more innovative than HTMX. You know, HTMX uh, is, I think, a, a cool piece of software, but, but what he did, I think, is a much larger technical accomplishment. Well, he probably didn't do it in like 3,000 lines of code because I mean, it sounds like what you're describing is like, if I'm if I'm understanding this correctly, it's like let's say I want to build an iOS app. Today I could just sit down and write a bunch of Swift code for the entire thing and then do RPC to my server for the stuff that needs to go over the network. But if I were to use this hyperview system instead, what I would do is I would write a mix of Swift and not literally HTML, but something HTML like that's an XML description of you know the user interface elements and so forth. And over the network, I now get the ability to get more of that XML and stuff like that and update my UI on the fly without necessarily having to write Swift code at all. And so my Swift code then sort of serves the role that JavaScript originally did in browsers where it's like, this is just for more advanced needs, but actually most, maybe even all of my application, you know, because talked about like a lot of the web apps I use today are, are just, you know, could have been very easily written in that old school style based on the functionality they provide. The same is absolutely true of mobile apps that I use all the time. They they don't need, you know, anything more than conceptually just, you know, HTML other than a few very specific, you know, mobile specific things. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I think it's React Native. So, and I think it, you can have it work on both Android and iOS. So, uh, it's, you know, you, you won't be able to escape JavaScript at some level. But uh, you will be able to, you know, especially for applications that are things like, uh, you know, restaurant management, you know, things like that, where the the benefit is the network. It's the, the, the coordination of data on a server. But then it's nice to have a mobile, uh, like a true native mobile application just for the ability to do more, uh, to respond a little more quickly and to provide a more native feel than a web application. And so, uh, again, I I really encourage listeners to take a look at hyperview.org. I think it's a really interesting piece of technology. Well, actually, I mean, one of the things that I, anyway, I understand that probably for saving implementation time, it was written in React Native. But one of the things that actually seems kind of cool to me is that I do know that React Native has a lot of famous performance problems, or infamous, I guess I should say, that sort of stem from the fact that it is running this separate thread of JavaScript, uh, like a JavaScript interpreter, in addition to the, the native language. And it seems like this would be, in principle, a way that you could sidestep that. And obviously, that's a much bigger project. And if you've just got one person working on it, maybe that's not you know uh, a realistic like goal. But it is kind of cool to think about that you don't need JavaScript for that design to work. You could make it so that this is just Objective-C or Swift or Kotlin or whatever on Android and this markup that describes your UI. Yeah, I mean, if Apple, if anyone at Apple is listening, I think this could be a really good idea to provide, you know, what what would we call it? Like Swift server components? Would that make it sound cool? Like what (laughs) kids are doing now? Or scary, depending on your view. (laughs) (laughs) But hypermedia, again, this is why I would encourage people to go and read at least the first couple chapters 
of hypermedia systems, even if you're not super interested in HTMX, which is understandable, just to understand that what, what a hypermedia system is and how it's different. Cause it really, it does provide you a tremendous amount of flexibility. And, uh, so yeah, I think that's a, you know, a swift, a swift style uh, or a swift based hypermedia client would be certainly a very interesting project. I've seen people do, I've seen a couple people now do uh, sort of command line based, uh, the, what are those called? The terminal TUI. Oh yeah, TUIs. Yeah, I think people call them TUI or pronounce yeah, it TUI. Yeah, so terminal UI uh, based uh, browsers or hypermedia clients, where they define a, a really basic uh, hypermedia, and then their terminal application works against that. And I think that's really that could be super interesting and neat too. It's it's always it's hard for me. Browsers are just so darn uh, functional at this point <laughs> that it's hard for me to see. And, you know, computing systems like our phones are so powerful now that it's hard to, for me to see them not being the dominant hypermedia client, but just the ideas are interesting. So worth looking into if you're, you know, an engineer just on general. Principle, yeah, in my for opinion. sure. I mean, it's, it's a little bit weird for me to think about this as somebody who, I mean, I sort of, for a long time in my career, I, I say a long time, but you know, I don't know. <laughs> half a decade or something, I guess in, in the software development world that counts as a long part of your career. But I spent a lot of time intentionally gravitating towards really complicated UIs that would not really necessarily benefit from this, or at least that was the part that I kind of enjoyed working on the most, which is kind of how I ended up with the Elm programming language or, or like using it a lot and getting a lot of value out of it. And a funny thing that ended up happening was that at the, the company where I ended up using Elm the most, we ended up actually being so happy with Elm on the front end that we actually ended up kind of doing the reverse of what we're talking about, which is we basically had an, an unofficial policy that kind of became more official over time that it's like, if you have a choice, put it in the client, not necessarily for any architectural reasons, just because Elm is so much nicer to work with than Ruby on the back end. And so it was um, the fact that the language is only available in the client that sort of drove that. But it's interesting to think about the fact that most people are in the opposite situation. Like a lot of people I talk to are working on a web app where for architectural reasons, they kind of have their choice of how much they want to be in the client versus how much they want to be in the server. Either one is a defensible architectural choice. And, you know, although maybe they could slim down the complexity a lot if they move more of it to the server. But what interests them about HTMX is quite often they want to use that that server-side language more. They don't want to use JavaScript. They don't want to use NPM. They don't want to use TypeScript or React or any of that stuff. Or they want to use as little of it as possible. They, they want to just sort of sprinkle in a tiny bit of JavaScript if, uh, if necessary. And that's, that's as much as they want to have to do with JavaScript. And I wonder if in a world where people did more of that, where, where that had sort of stayed the common way of doing things, I wonder if TypeScript actually becomes a thing. Because if you have a small enough volume of JavaScript, the problems that TypeScript solves become so comparatively minor that, you know, I don't think TypeScript would have taken off even if it existed in its current form in like 2008, just because the things that people were building, they're like, what, my like 2000 lines of JavaScript, you're going to, you're going to give me a type checker for that. They're like, well, yeah, that sounds kind of cool, but I don't know what, what's it going to do to my, I don't have a build step actually. And you know, that now I have to have a build step. I don't know. I don't know. But I mean, you mentioned that you know, HTMX is 3000 lines of JavaScript, you know, no type checking, no build step. That's kind of the way that the current rocklang.org website is. I spent a lot of time working on that. And I think we might have two JavaScript files and we could combine it into one. But at some point I did just jam all the CSS into one file. Uh, and part of the reason for that is it's like, look, there's no, there's no namespacing anyway. It's like, what, what is putting it in different files get me other than a false sense of security? Like, they're all just going to get jammed together at runtime anyway by the browser. So unless I have some specific performance-based reason to want to only load some chunks of it on some pages, which I don't, like, why pretend? You know, and why, why introduce a build step when we, if we don't necessarily need one other than maybe for optimizations right before we, you know, ship it out the door? Like, if I'm developing locally, I would rather just have a faster feedback loop and not have to deal with any of that stuff. I think more people could get away with that if they thought more about or were more interested in saying, you know what, actually, we can, we can do some of the stuff on the server and, and maybe even most of it. 
Yeah. I mean, I'm seeing a, so this is a, a bunch of ideas kind of floating around there, but um, a big one is the place of JavaScript in not only web development, but just development in general. And, you know, five to maybe, maybe more like seven years ago, right around 2015, I'd say there was sort of an inevitability, this feeling of inevitability around JavaScript, where JavaScript was going to take over everything. And that, you know, that kind of peaked, maybe, I don't know if it peaked in 2019, I don't know. But I think some of the people on the front end still feel that way, like JavaScript is going to take over the world. And then, you know, people realize, okay, JavaScript, he said, so when Node came along, Node comes along, and now you've got JavaScript on the back end, and people are building these SPAs with a bunch of JavaScript on the front end. And the people that weren't using JavaScript on the back end suddenly have this question if, they're, if they have an SPA, if they have a big, big JavaScript uh, client on the front end. Why aren't we using JavaScript on both sides of the wire? Because if we do, then we can reuse, for example, validation logic and just all this stuff that we can do on both sides of the wire. And so there is this large amount of pressure. And uh, I hate to keep picking on Rich because uh, he seems like a really nice guy, but he he gave a talk called Have SPAs Ruin the Web. And in that talk, he mentioned what he called the JavaScript resistance, which is this sort of rear guard action trying to prevent JavaScript from taking over all of development. I'd be interested in hearing his if, if, if he still thinks that that's a rear guard movement at this point. But uh, what HTMX and what the hypermedia model does is, as you've pointed out, it really opens up because you have a low JS client. You don't have a no JS client. You still use script on the client side, but it's just not, it's not all JavaScript. You don't have this huge client. You end up producing HTML on the server side. And that opens up the server side to uh, whatever programming language you want to use for a particular application. And I've always, that's one thing I've really, I, I like a lot about HTMX is that it makes it more viable to do web development in programming languages that aren't JavaScript or TypeScript. And I agree with you. I think TypeScript, if HTMX or if some, if HTML had incorporated ideas from HTMX, not that it could have, but, you know, but if they kept pushing HTML forward as a hypermedia, I think the pressure to create something like TypeScript would have been much lower because the amount of JavaScript that was necessary to accomplish the majority of web applications would have been so much lower. And dynamic languages are great when you when you need to script, you know, they're awesome when you've got, you know, a couple hundred lines of, you know, relatively simple code, but they start falling apart when you've got like tens of thousands of lines of code and you've got to, you know, manage modules and all this stuff. That's when it's, they start to get really hairy. And so that's when, you know, I think the, the pressure to create something and adopt something like TypeScript really starts to come in. So I agree. I definitely think that you're correct that uh, in a separate, on some other timeline <laughs> where where HTML was more expressive, uh, uh, TypeScript m- might not exist or might not be as important as it is today. And I do think, you know, I do think now we're, we're going through this rediscovery of hypermedia, I hope, and uh, that's going to make TypeScript not as important because if SBAs really did take over, if Rich is right, if Rich Harris is right, that uh, JavaScript is going to uh, take over the world, then it's probably not going to take over the world, at least very successfully on the server side for large applications. You're going to want to have something like TypeScript to build large, you know, domain objects and just deal with all that stuff. And so, but uh, if HTMX and if this sort of rediscovery of hypermedia can help people use other languages like Go, like Rust, like Java, Python, all the, you know, all the good languages that have their pluses and minuses and their own uh, idiosyncrasies, which I like, then I think that we'll be in a spot where TypeScript isn't as important. Yeah. I mean, (laughs) I, I like this, you know, it thinks it's a rhetorical question of, uh, you know, why wouldn't everybody want to use JavaScript on both the client and the server? And the obvious answer is because you don't want to be unhappy in both places <laughs> if you could just be unhappy in one place. But also, I mean... JavaScript, <laughs> JavaScript is actually a pretty bad programming language. <laughs> <laughs> I read a lot of JavaScript and, you know, it is, it's got one great feature, which is that it's there. <laughs> That's the, the, killer, <laughs> the killer feature of JavaScript is that it's there. And so you can use it and, you know, I've come to 
I've come to terms with a lot of the aspects of it that I, that I don't like. I've developed a style of writing JavaScript that I like, but, uh, it's not, it's just not a very, you know, it's not a great programming language and that's okay. That's kind of funny. doesn't mean you can't be productive with it. You know, visual basic isn't a great programming language either, but you can do all sorts of cool stuff with visual basic. Oh yeah. So that's fine. A lot, a lot of fond memories of Visual Basic. I mean, yeah, I think I love the. I tell the, people the Visual Basic debugger is the best debugger I've ever used. Oh yeah, it's way oh, yeah, better it than anything. Like, you it. can drag the program counter around, rewrite code on the fly, like step through. Like it's amazing compared to the. It's you know we're banging rocks together in, in most development environments today compared to what Visual Basic developers had back in like '96. So. Oh, absolutely. And I, I, I mean, I remember because that was the first IDE I ever used and it, it probably was around 96 actually. And I distinctly remember that after that, I sort of stopped using debuggers and like didn't really use them as much, even though I, I remember using that one all the time. I, I kind of still vaguely remember like what the breakpoint icon looked like <laughs> because I used yeah. it all the time. And yeah, it's, it's just a, a good example of things aren't always better than they used to be. Sometimes you can look back and say, actually, things were better back then. And it's not just nostalgia. It's like I can list the ways in which they were better. And we we have problems today that we didn't have back then. And and like really big, complicated build processes on the front end are, are another great example of that. I mean, it's not just TypeScript. It's like there's this whole sort of entire ecosystem of stuff that needs to happen just to try to build a modern JavaScript app. One of the things that, people love about elm is that that's not a thing you just run elm make and it builds your whole thing and that's it that's the build stuff that's the that's the process it's one one cli command and you add dash dash optimize if you want it to like you know <laughs> like you know make it optimized so i think about these things and i like to view them as it's not just you know like we said they're it's not just about like oh we're, we're being nostalgic we're trying to go back and like recapture the old glory days when we were younger and so forth, but rather to say, well, what if we got these things wrong? What if we did an experiment? And, you know, I'm not saying we should, everybody should go write Visual Basic for all their web apps, but, (laughs) but I am saying that we should, we should look at that and be able to honestly say with ourselves that actually we have not done as well as we did in that one dimension in that old way. And JavaScript I mean, as it was originally designed, was supposed to be somewhat of a seasoning. Like the amount of JavaScript that you were intended to write was very, very small, which is part of the reason that it's, you know, <laughs> it's designed the way that it does. And there's a lot of things that you look at it and you think, this is not going to work out well at any kind of scale. If you went back and gave that feedback to Brendan Ike, he would probably blink and say, What are you talking about, scale? That's not a thing this language is for. What do you yeah. <laughs> what do you mean the inevitability of everyone using JavaScript for all programming? What are you talking about? That's that's yeah. not what I'm building this for. Yeah, it is, you know, and that's just the way things things are very chaotic. You know, there's a lot of technologies that are accidentally adopted rather than you know, it was just x86. I mean, for how how long were we using a glorified and still are using a glorified cache register chip for, <laughs> for like general for our computing, you know? And uh, that Wait, is that what x86 tech. was originally used for? Yeah, it was a, it was a cache register chip and they the only reason they brought out I think it was the 8080, it might have been the 8080. I think it was the 8080 was because they had this other chip Intel had this other chip, the APX2 something, I forget. But this other chip was great. It was like, it had, like, I don't know how much of a hardware guy you are, but it had no user-facing registers. It was like a stack machine. It had it had a hardware support for wow. garbage collection. Like, all this really advanced what? stuff. That, yeah, stuff that you see in, like, you know, the Lisp machines. The Lisp machines, the Lisp yeah, machines, right. Yeah, if you, if you remember that stuff. Like, really sophisticated chip that supported a very high-level programming language was the, the idea but they couldn't make that work and so just as sort of a stopgap i think they i think it was the 8080 they uh they released that chip and then it got adopted and took off and here we are you know 30 years 40 40 years later so 50 years later i guess almost at this point so there's just a lot of chaos and a lot of good ideas that have been unfortunately dropped on the floor i think you have some familiarity for example with hypercard which was a system a bit, that yeah. I used. That was my, that was the first system I ever programmed in. It was HyperCard on a Mac for real. I mean, I did some basic 
programming in DOS. But um, but uh, my my first real web applications were built in HyperCard, and or my first real applications, I should say, and they were you know very simple. I was in high school, but uh, there there were some really neat aspects to that. And uh, Visual Basic as well. I did I, I didn't do a ton of Visual Basic programming, but for about a year, I did a fair amount, and I was just blown away by you know how easy it was to do things and how easy it was to debug. And so you can look back and see those things and say, man, <laughs> you know, it doesn't always get better. Sometimes the worst technology does win. Usually, you know, it, there's that, I don't know if you've ever read the paper, Worse is Better. Very famous. Yeah. Yeah. Um, by Gabriel. But, uh, you know, sometimes the, the things that stank win. like a lot of the Lisp guys look at Unix that way. Like Unix is just this garbage <laughs> operating system that won because C, I think one of the quotes from that paper is C is the ultimate computer virus. So, um, <laughs> but, you know, okay. That's all kind of somewhat negative, but I think one positive thing to take away from that is that you can go back and look at old technologies and often discover neat things that are not being done today. And so, you know, a side project of uh, HTMX that I work on is a scripting language called HyperScript um, at Hyper script.org and that's sort of designed to be what you how you describe javascript sort of as a little snippets of code sprinkled around in your html to make it do you know some somewhat dynamic stuff and uh, that was inspired largely by or in in large part by my experience with uh, a scripting language called hypertalk which was the scripting language for for hypercard and so just because I, i knew that old language i needed an event Based language, and I was like, "Oh, you know, HyperTalk kind of worked that way." And so I went back and reread that, and uh, created a, a somewhat interesting scripting language to pair with HTMX. So I think that you know that's the good news. There's a lot of old stuff that uh, is actually really has some pretty interesting ideas that could be brought into the you know brought into the modern world by just taking them and moderate, modernizing them. Another thing that I think people don't appreciate is how much faster computers are than back oh, in the yeah. old days. And so HyperScript, for example, is a uh, is a parser and an interpreter written in JavaScript. <laughs> oh, so, wow. It's, I mean, if you had told me that this would work at all, I would have said you're crazy, but it works pretty well. JavaScript is really fast. And so we actually do all the parsing and the, the lexing and parsing and then the interpreting in JavaScript. And I mean, you know, I wouldn't, you know, write a Bitcoin miner in it or something like that. But if you just need to flip a class on an element, man, it's, it's pretty fast. <laughs> so, well, and it, again, that's the type of thing where it's like, it's fast enough as long as the amount of it you're doing is small. But I mean, you think about a lot of these transpilers, which are doing the same thing. They're actually, they're not even doing interpreting, right? They're, they're doing parsing and then some really usually pretty simple transformation and then spitting it back out again. And a lot of those are now being rewritten in Rust because the volume of JavaScript that has to go through that pipeline gets to the point where it's very noticeable if you write it in something other than JavaScript. But again, yeah, I mean, if you keep it small enough, like, yeah, everybody's probably just can't tell the difference. They're just like, yeah, I don't know. Runs at 60 frames per second. It's good enough. Whatever. I don't, I don't care. I believe wasn't HyperCard the f- or HyperTalk maybe was the first graphical user interface that did events for for uh, as a way uh, a system for dealing with i can't with imagine it was the first <laughs> it just seems un you know there's got to be uh you know there had oh, to be some small talk i mean i think that would be the only yeah, possible small thing talk it was it. its own sort of thing it was definitely inspired by small talk but hyper talk was the first language that i ever saw where events were sort of first class citizens so you have you can define functions but you can also define event handlers where sort of like in you know html you have the on click attribute and then you can write code in there right so take that idea and generalize it as part of the language where you can say on some event name do this stuff and that's that's basically hyper talk and then that there a whole series of less well-known languages sort of grew out of that they're collectively called the x talk languages so if listeners are interested they can uh, look up x talk on uh, on Wikipedia and see a bunch of links to a bunch of different languages, but HyperScript, HyperScript.org is the website for it. Um, 
um, is definitely like in that lineage. And uh, my observation there was just when I was doing web development with HTMX, I had situations where, man, I just, you know, I had like some events. So first of all, HTMX triggers a large number of events to kind of give people hooks for like, okay, before this, after this happens or before this happens, like if you want to, for example, if you want to configure a request, there's an HTMX colon config request event. And then you can use that to like stick extra parameters in the request or whatever, change, you know, whatever you need to do, add headers or whatever. So I wanted, I I didn't, one of the problems that you have, so people often when they look at something like HyperScript, they'll say, why not just use like on click? (laughs) What's all this junk? And that's great when you just need to handle clicks, but when you need to handle custom events, that's where it gets tricky because the, there isn't an on HTMX colon <laughs> uh, config request attribute. That's not part of the HTML standard. That's what HyperScript was designed to address. It's like, I need to catch that event on this thing and then do some stuff. And so that, I took that and then added in, um, like I tried to make HyperScript more expressive than JavaScript. JavaScript, it's a funny mix of like, you know, some people call it like Lisp with C syntax, which I think is huh. like kind of true to an extent. But they also like they the APIs for it to me feel very heavy, like Java, like J2EE heavy sometimes. Document.query selector, you know, or document and query selector all or whatever. And so one thing I tried to do with with HyperScript is make it more domain specific. So you can put like, for example, CSS literals directly in the language and it'll evaluate them and so forth. And so I tried to really make it a higher level language. Another interesting aspect of HyperScript, if your listeners are into this sort of stuff, is uh, uh, it's what's called async transparent. So the the runtime resolves promises for you, so you don't have to. So if you have some expression that produces a promise, the runtime will actually pause until that promise resolves and then it'll continue. And so that lets you write linear code without having to deal with resolving promises or without putting awaits in or any of that stuff. And that makes it very slow. <laughs> That's one reason why I went to a <laughs> Bitcoin miner in it. But if you're scripting, if you write a very high level, like where I just want to like toggle a class or make a, you know, a, a fetch request and then do something with this, like you don't care, like you're, you're just scripting. And so it's, it's just a different level uh, of programming which to me feels very comfortable because of my experience with HyperTalk and, and uh, HyperCard. Very cool. I, I think it's awesome that you're exploring all these things because, yeah, I mean, it, it seems like uh, someone should. And I, you know, as someone who's lived through these different eras of web development, I definitely appreciate someone saying like, let's, let's, let's re-examine all of the, our supposed progress and, <laughs> and see, and, you know, if we could have uh, done better. So, yeah, th- thanks for doing that and for uh, you know talking through all these things. I really appreciate it. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, and it's I think a big part of it is just you know sort of what you said, like just be willing to take a chance and realizing how much faster computers are. Like we can, when I see, for example, like when something's slow on a computer, someone messed up. <laughs> computers are so fast now they're so fast like there's just if if things are slow someone messed up (laughs) Uh, if i can write an interpreted uh, you know a lexer compiler and interpreter in javascript that resolves promises in the runtime (laughs) and it can be like a usable programming language then you should be able to do most things with computers so you You know know, you you would think Uh. you would think you would yeah, we, we had a couple if, episodes if, ago, we, we talked about a lot of, uh, yeah, given how fast computers are, performance should be a lot faster and we're not really living up to that. <laughs> yeah, definitely. It's maybe uh, time definitely to pause that. and reflect a little bit. Right? <laughs> 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 yeah. Carson, well, thanks so much for, uh, for chatting with you about all these things. Uh, anything else we should talk about before we wrap up? Um, no, I think, you know, again, we didn't talk too much about the details of HTMX, but it sounds like your uh, listeners are pretty, you know, they're, they're web app oriented. So um, you can learn HTMX very quickly, probably in a day, if you know HTML pretty well. Um, and so you can check that out at htmx.org. We have a book that's available, again, free online at hypermedia.systems. And you can buy it on Amazon, too. There's a hard hard co- hardcover and then a, a, a Kindle version of it. We kind of went super high end and then super low end or not super low end, but just Kindle. 
but you can read it for free online. That's all the same content. And then the only other thing that I'd mention is my Twitter account, <laughs> which, which is at Twitter or X or whatever, twitter.com slash HTMX underscore org. And uh, that Twitter account is very silly. So if you enjoy silliness, then, uh, <laughs> you can go check out HTMX underscore org. Excellent. All right. Well, uh, let's, let's wrap it up there. And, and I just want to thank you again for coming on and, and talking about all these things. Yeah. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. Have a good one. You too.